Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Friday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program. My mission is to make certain that in 2022, we are talking about where we go, that we have real plans, and that we're having deep conversations. But more than anything, that we have a shared vision for one Georgia, our Georgia, not this division, not this false narrative that's put out there to disguise failure, but a true conversation about who and what we can be together. So our conversation with Stacey Abrams in her first radio interview since announcing she's launching yet another gubernatorial bid. Also, for about a month now, children ages 5 to 11 have been eligible for Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine. Atlanta-based pediatrician Dr. Andy Shane talks to us about what she's hearing from parents and the kids. Also, will third-party candidates have an impact in next year's federal and state elections? All those conversations are coming up, but we'll begin with this. Regarding the news about Stacey Abrams, Governor Brian Kemp says he's ready for a possible rematch. Our own political reporter, Raul Bali, reports Kemp is not only preparing for a challenge from Abrams, but from his own party. Governor Brian Kemp says the national attention on Stacey Abrams' announcement for governor works in his favor. I love it. I mean, it's not shocking. That's why we've been working so hard. I think it's a rallying point for Republicans. During a press conference, Kemp was asked about recent comments by former President Donald Trump and other conservatives attacking his reelection bid. I can't control what other people are doing. Uh, Trump supporters and Kemp supporters and Georgia Republicans and Georgia voters know what my record is. And that is what I'm going to remind people of. And I believe when they understand that, that I will be reelected. Kemp also addressed reports that former U.S. Senator David Perdue is considering a run against him. Kemp said Perdue had told him he would support his reelection bid. Well, look, all I know is what Senator Perdue's told me. Uh, I hope he'll be a man of his word, but again, that's not anything I can control. A run by Perdue would likely have the backing of former President Trump. Raul Bally, WABE News. And in other news, the family of a Georgia Tech student shot and killed by campus police has settled a lawsuit. WAB's Lisa Hagan has that story. Georgia Tech police officer Tyler Beck fatally shot Scout Schultz in 2017 after Schultz had called 911 about an armed, suspicious person. Schultz, who used they-them pronouns, had described themselves to police, and suicide notes were later found in their dorm room. Video of the student's death surfaced and led to fiery campus protests. Then Fulton County District Attorney Paul Howard announced he would not criminally charge the officer who killed Schultz. A statement from Schultz's family lawyer noted Georgia Tech has since required campus officers to train in crisis intervention and expanded resources for LGBTQ students. Schultz was president of the university's Pride Alliance. Lisa Hagan, WABE News. The state of Georgia will get nearly a $160 million, I guess, dollars, lots of money, from the federal government for water infrastructure projects next year. WABE's Molly Samuel tells us this is a result of the infrastructure law that President Joe Biden obviously signed last month. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency is allocating more than $7 billion next year to states, territories, and tribes to address water infrastructure needs. EPA Administrator Michael Regan sent a letter to Governor Brian Kemp to share his agency's priorities for how the money is spent. Regan says the EPA would like to see the infrastructure funding used to address needs in underserved communities, to make more progress removing lead pipes, and to address other water contamination. Molly Samuel, WABE News. 
And finally, a big college football weekend for two schools right in our state. First, Kennesaw State plays East Tennessee State in Johnson City, Tennessee, for the second round of the NCAA Division I Football Championship Subdivision. So best of luck to Coach Brian Bohannon and the team. And who you got, Alabama or them dogs from UGA, as both teams play for the SEC Championship tomorrow at Mercedes-Benz Stadium here in Atlanta. The Bulldogs are the top-ranked college football team in the nation. Alabama comes in with one loss from the regular season. Side note, they should have lost at least two more, but that's just me and, and my observation. Now, Georgia last won the SEC championship in 2017, and a win locks the Bulldogs in for a spot in the national championship playoffs. Kickoff for SEC championship is scheduled for 4 p.m. Let's see what these dogs do. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. Oh, yes, we know there was speculation since November of 2018. Will she run again? When is she making an announcement? Well, this week, she, being Stacey Abrams, made it official. The answer is, yeah, she will seek the governor's office here in Georgia once again. And when we spoke a few hours ago, that's exactly where the conversation begins. Stacey Abrams, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's been a long time. I think last time we talked, you were writing books. <laughs> Still doing that, but decided to you know, focus on my core passion, which is service. And there's a job interview coming up. Well, and no longer do you have to field the question, are you running for governor? What led to this being the moment to do so, to make that announcement? As, as you know, I've, I've spent three years in the private sector. I've taken on a number of responsibilities and making this decision meant adjusting several different pieces of my life. But at the core of it, I believe in service. I believe in Georgia. And this is a job that I think I'm ready and, and more than capable of doing. And now is the time. Was there a point after November of 2018 when you contemplated not seeking another bid? Not really. I, mm-hmm. I but I, my that's not how I approach this. Mm-hmm. When the election was over, I sincerely meant when I what I said, which is not getting the title doesn't exempt you from the work. And so I set about focusing on the work that mattered, working on voter protection through the work of Fair Fight, focusing on a census and civic engagement through Fair Count, and focusing on the public policies that can strengthen Georgia and the South through the Southern Economic Advancement Project, or SEEP. Those are entities that I've spent the last three years focused on because they all come back to my core mission, which is serving Georgia, making certain that families that are feeling pain and feeling left behind, that they actually have a vision for the future that includes them and making certain that we have real plans for their success. And now is the time to apply for the job that will let me do that at a greater scale and most directly through the government of Georgia. In the video announcing your gubernatorial bid, you stated, quote, my job is to put my head down and keep working for one Georgia, close quote. How different, if indeed it is, will your campaign message be this time around? It will not differ at all. Mm-hmm. In 2018, my message was that I wanted opportunity for all Georgians. My message in 2022 will be the same. The challenges are different in some ways. We have faced a pandemic. We are in the midst of economic turmoil that's different than before, but it's not unfamiliar. And we are reckoning with injustices that have long been unfortunately part of our society, but have reasserted their urgency. 
but we're also dealing with the same intractable issues of high rates of underinsurance and uninsurance in the state of Georgia, closing hospitals, low wages for communities. And we know that there are communities that are never included in the plans of the current governor. And my mission is to be someone who leads for all Georgians, whether you agree with me or not. In 2018, I ran like this, and in 2022, I'll do the same. My job and my goal is to serve all Georgians. Although, obviously, we didn't have the pandemic in 2018. We have it now. How much of everything tied to that? Because all these issues were seemingly amplified. All the inequities were amplified for some folks who act like, They didn't know they existed, but for others, we knew. How much of that will be a focus on how Georgia responded or could have responded better under Brian Kemp's leadership as it relates to the pandemic will be part of your messaging? It's going to be core to it. The pandemic revealed for some, to your point, revealed for some the fractures and the inequities in our existing systems. Most of those are public systems, our public health system that did not meet the moment and allowed millions of Georgians to go without access and have yet to respond to the vaccine hesitancy and the vaccine access issues that continue to exist. The brokenness of our income inequality system where we should have a much more robust and engaged response, especially in some of the counties that are among the most impoverished in the nation. We have opportunities in this state. We've got an infusion of capital, we have an infusion of talent, but what we have at the state level is a confusion of responsibility. Brian Kemp doesn't know who, what his job is. And my intention is replacing him with someone who does. And that's me. So then to ask you how you assess his decisions related to the pandemic and leading the state. I guess it's pretty much answered in what you just said. Well, let's see. He has cautioned people or urged people to consult with their doctors, knowing that half a million Georgians lack access to health insurance, which means they lack access to doctors. He has overseen the closure of two additional hospitals, which extends a record that Republicans have had in the state of more hospitals closing under their leadership. He has refused to help cities and counties actually mitigate the effect of COVID by thwarting their attempt to meet their community needs. He has been, if not silent, then certainly ineffective in engaging on how we ensure the safety of our children. And on every metric, when you look at what we should be doing in the state, he has failed to do his job. And whether it's a lack of understanding or a lack of leadership, he owns what we have and he cannot take credit for the markers he likes without taking responsibility for the failures that sit at his feet. Is there anything that you can cite that you thought he did make a good decision about as it relates to the welfare of all Georgians? during this pandemic? I cannot think of one off the top of my head because almost every decision made was either made late, made with poor information sharing. It was made often under a cloud and rarely made with the best interest of Georgians in mind. You stated four years ago after acknowledging Kemp would be certified the winner, you said, quote, but to watch an elected official who claims to represent the people in this state badly pin his hopes for election on suppression of the people's democratic right to vote has been truly appalling, close quote. Will that narrative still be part of your campaign? And can you understand someone saying, Ms. Abrams, that is over to still go back and bring up what you saw as the governor not fairly winning? based on voter suppression, those issues through your lens. Can you understand someone saying, can you move beyond that or will that still be part of your campaign? I ran a campaign in 2018 that was focused on the needs of the state of Georgia. I ran a campaign that focused almost exclusively on the issues that voting can yield. It was only after it was revealed how egregious his leadership was that that became a focal point in the campaign. And I'm never going to shy away from challenging systems that are broken. But my time has been spent trying to do good for Georgia. I've helped I've helped settle the debt of 68,000 Georgians, their medical debt. I've How'd delivered you do that? thousands of We did that through uh, the work of Fair Fight. We purchased the medical debt of 68,000 Georgians. And we actually did it for more than 100,000 people across the, across the South and Southwest. I helped deliver thousands of pounds of food to 
food banks in South Georgia during the height of the pandemic. My focus is going to be talking about the issues, but I will absolutely always talk about whether or not Georgia voters have free and fair access to the polls. That's not about relitigating an election. It's about looking at and protecting our democracy. And so I don't have to hearken back to 2018. I can point to 2021 and what Brian Kemp has done yet again to leverage voter suppression as a pathway to cherry picking voters as opposed to doing what he should to ensure free and fair access for every single voter in the state of Georgia who's eligible to cast a ballot. Is there any merit given to the governor and Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger for refusing to buy into under Donald Trump's lie, which is what it's been, that the election was stolen from him here in Georgia? Is there any merit you give them for that? I absolutely credit them for doing their jobs, but you don't get special points for doing the bare minimum of your role which is to reject a, f- a very blatant lie and to refuse to concede to a conspiracy theory. What will be your campaign tour? We're still in a pandemic, and I think we'll still be there, <laughs> you know, obviously in next year as we, we head into 2022. Uh, what is your strategy in terms of getting out, meeting all of Georgia's as much as you can, uh, and at the same time now we have a new variant that we have to deal with? Have you and your team thought about that? Are there areas that you definitely know you have to hit harder than other regions? I intend to do what I did in 2018, which is go to every single county in the state of Georgia, talk to every community in the state of Georgia. This is going to be a long campaign. We are going to be respectful of not only the protocols recommended by the CDC, but also the concerns represented by families that are still trying to get themselves and their communities back together. But our intention is going to be to show up in every place and to talk about the issues, to talk about a vision for Georgia where people can move up through economic mobility, by improving wages, through social mobility, through access to healthcare, access to housing, and through education mobility, by making sure that our schools are thriving and are serving our kids. That's going to be the mission, and that's a conversation that has to be had in every corner of Georgia. Last time I ran, I went to one music fest, but also went to where they filmed Deliverance. I will go, everyone, and I will talk to everyone, because I don't want to be elected simply by those who agree with me. I want to be elected to serve everyone, whether they agree with me or not. Stacey, as we begin to wrap up, when you think about where we are now in Georgia, as opposed to last year in the pandemic, and much like a lot of other states, What is your hope for Georgia heading into 2022 in terms of this pandemic and where we are in this moment and where we could be even a year from now? We are a state that is contained of so many promises, but we also have so many families that are in pain. They are in economic pain. They are grieving. We've lost more than 25,000 people in our state, family members who are lost and gone. We are grappling with national and international challenges, but we have the tools to respond. And my mission is to make certain that in 2022, we are talking about where we go, that we have real plans and that we're having deep conversations, but more than anything, that we have a shared vision for one Georgia, our Georgia, not this division, not this false narrative that's put out there to disguise failure, but a true conversation about who and what we can be together. Obviously, you will be at that top of the Democratic ticket. Let's be really clear, obviously, in the statewide races. Um, There's also a Senate race as well. What is your or what has been your conversation from a national standpoint with the Democrats about strategies for Georgia? Now, listen, five years ago, six years ago, I've known you for a long time. Had we been talking about Georgia being a major player In midterm elections, maybe you and I both would have laughed. I don't know. But now Georgia is in play. What is your hope with the Democratic Party as a whole that you all can do come 2022? The wonderful thing about the work we've been able to do here in Georgia is that it hasn't stopped. It took 2018 to put us on the map, 2020 to prove our concept, and 2021 to reaffirm that 2020 wasn't a fluke. 
And what we've seen since then has been targeted investment in this state, a continued conversation. We have two extraordinary U.S. senators who have not only served every person in Georgia, but they have been standard bearers for a Democratic Party that sees and hears and understands the needs of our people. And that's why we've seen resources delivered to the state despite every Republican in the state and the congressional delegation voting against these dollars coming into our state. And despite a governor who seems to spend most of his time challenging the very people who are pouring resources into the state. And what I believe we can do is to amplify the good that Democrats are doing in Georgia and around the country. But more than anything, we can show what Georgia can be with good leadership, solid leadership, thoughtful leadership. But beyond Brian Kemp, Governor Brian Kemp and state Republicans, there is the Donald Trump machine. We cannot ignore that. In fact, he weighed in on you making your announcement. He said he beat you once. Those are his words. How do you see you have to also campaign against Donald Trump? I I didn't campaign against him in 2018, and I don't intend to do it in 22. My fight is for Georgia. My fight is for a vision of Georgia that sees us as one state, recognizing that whether you live in the metro Atlanta area or in the metro Augusta area or the metro uh, Sylvester area, that you are getting the services that you need and that you are being a, you are seen as a part of a larger opportunity for greatness in the state. And that's what we all deserve. Stacey Abrams, Georgia Democratic gubernatorial candidate, 2022. Stacey, as always, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And you're listening to Closer Look here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's Choice for Information. Yes, news, NPR, all that. I'm Rose Scott. By the way, in case you're wondering, because you heard Stacey Abrams mention Sylvester, Georgia, it got me to thinking, where is Sylvester, Georgia? And my producer here, young Daniel, told me it was, where'd you say it was, Daniel? South Central. South Central. That didn't give me much, but I did look it up, and apparently this is also the peanut production capital of the world. So information that you can use. Anyway, here's what we know about the number of eligible adults who have been vaccinated. As we, as of right now, this week, more than 196 million adults are considered fully vaccinated. Now, that's out of 464 million doses administered, which puts the nation roughly close to 60 percent. And for about a month now, children ages 5 to 11 have been eligible for Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine. And depending on the state, the vaccination rates in that for that age group, it varies from state to state, state to state. And we'll tell you about Georgia's number in a moment. Now, Dr. Andy Shane is a pediatric infectious disease expert with Emory University and also with Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. She's become a regular contributor throughout all of this. And folks email me and they say, can you have Dr. Shane on? She's not my pediatrician, but I wish she was. I'm like, well, look, don't use me to get free medical <laughs> advice from Dr. Shane. But Dr. Shane, as always, we appreciate you because you bring such important conversations, such important information. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you, Rose. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's begin with what's being reported in terms of the 5 to 11-year-olds here in Georgia. Now, according to the CDC, that vaccination rate is just about 4.8% surprisingly low to you or not? Well, I think one of the things we have to think about is that there is sometimes a delay in reporting. um, And we have seen that uh, quite consistently, both with adults and also with pediatric dosing. And so um, some of that might be, that low number might be due to uh, reporting delays. The other also is that uh, there of course was an initial tremendous excitement Um, And uh, with that, uh, oftentimes supplies didn't quite meet uh, demand. And so uh, people had to pull back and reschedule. So um, I think that the vaccination rate, at least my experience is higher, but obviously we still have a lot of work to do. Dr. Shane, what have been the questions you've gotten from parents who said, I want to make the appointment, I want to schedule, but again, I just have these questions that I need to know. What have they been So most of the questions actually have revolved similar to those uh, from adults have revolved around safety. 
and uh, concerns about um, adverse effects and side effects. So far, very reassuringly, we haven't uh, in a little over a month since the uh, vaccine has been authorized in five to 11 year old children, we haven't uh, seen uh, any notable adverse effects. And actually uh, many of the uh, uh, pain and fever and other tiredness that were seen in older adolescents and adults, uh, we have not painfully seen in children and most of us have been very happy and smiling and uh, not had any adverse effects, which has been very encouraging. What questions have the kids had for you other than, is this gonna hurt doctor? <laughs> uh, well, they always ask that. And, um, you know, I just also want to mention that this is also the flu season. And so flu vaccines are also being given. So kids are getting a two for one special. Um, and so, um, you know, many children also always have concerns about uh, about the needle and, and it hurting. But uh, with appropriate explanation and parents are our greatest advocates in calming the children, um, you know, most have been very accepting and saying that didn't even hurt. <laughs> Dr. Shane, I had a listener reach out ahead of this interview, and it's a parent who regularly sends in comments and questions, and she has a six-year-old. She said, you know, I'm fully vaccinated, I'm boosted, you know, the only concern I have is we talk about the adverse effects, but I'm concerned about long-term effects for my six-year-old son. And I'm sure you've heard that, and, and what have you... T- responded to with parents who've had that question, that same question? Yes, great question. And um, obviously, uh, you know, we have what we have, the information that we have. And uh, what we've certainly seen in adults is when the vaccine has been available for over a year now, um, or oh, close to a year now, um, we have not seen long-term consequences. What I am very concerned about, though, Rose, as a pediatrician, taking care of a number of children of the long-term consequences of COVID infection. And we are seeing them and they are significant and we're just beginning to understand them. So these vaccines are safe from what we know. And while everything is a risk and a benefit, I can say unequivocally that the risk of having a natural infection in terms of long-term consequences far outweighs the theoretical risk of having a consequence from the vaccine. We know the importance, what we're, we're told the importance of the booster, obviously. Uh, do you think that is something that will be needed for children? What is that conversation being talked about right now? So that's a great question, and I will. It also relates to your previous question about safety. And so once the vaccine is authorized, all of the children who were in those trials are still continuing to be monitored and followed. So uh, there is data that we are collecting from those children. Um, So it's not just we're finished, we're looking at these longer terms. And I don't know, we'll have to see with boosters in in children. Thankfully, their immune systems are a little bit different than adults. And um, so the dose that's currently authorized for the Pfizer vaccine is a lower dose. So we'll just have to we'll just have to wait and see. And that is clearly being followed very, very carefully. And uh, uh, people are really paying attention to that. Doctor, what do you want our listeners to know? We obviously have always talked about those populations in terms of adults who be at risk who might have other other conditions where folks like you have said that's why the vaccine is so important. Is it the same for kids for this age group, 5 to 11? From what we know, yes. And children who have underlying medical conditions are probably less likely to mount an immune response the way a healthy child might. And so actually by having your child immunized, you also be protecting those who may not be able to be immunized completely or who may not have a good immune response. So it's part of a community commitment as well as an individual commitment. Do you anticipate then with this new variant now that folks will then, that might, although as you said, we're not sure about that number that's being reported for Georgia, but do you anticipate maybe that whatever the number is in terms of those kids who were vaccinated in between 5 and 11, that number will increase because of this new variant? I I really am hoping so. Um, And we just don't know what's going to happen with this new variant. And the more people that are unvaccinated, the more opportunities there are for the emergence of variants. And so that's another reason as well, a public health reason to be be vaccinated. So we'll just have to see. And uh, we will be gathering information very quickly as the variant uh, spreads very quickly, and it seems to be very, very transmissible. Um, so really, this is an opportunity to really get ahead of that and protect your child. 
were you with the response from parents, your patients, people that you see? Was did were you surprised that was a high number, a low percentage? Do you anticipate that then it will pick up for you and what you all do, particularly over the Children's Health Care Atlanta? You all help so many kids um, in so many areas. Yeah, so I think that that's a great question. And obviously, one thing that I really do want to emphasize is that most of the children who have been hospitalized over the past four to five months um, have been children who have not been vaccinated, either have chosen not to be vaccinated, um, had some concerns about being vaccinated, or not age eligible uh, to be vaccinated. And so I'm hoping what we're going to see is a definite decline in the number of children that are five to 11 that are uh, being admitted to our hospitals um, as more and more children are vaccinated. So uh, the vaccine is definitely working in preventing severe disease and preventing hospitalizations in children. And that's a very important point. And Dr. Shane, I have another uh, question from a listener who says, so are you all still doing, are they still doing clinical trials for this age group? So there is a clinical trial that's going on for the Moderna vaccine. um, And so that is uh, an alternative to the Pfizer vaccine. And then, as I mentioned, uh, there's ongoing monitoring of the children who are in the Pfizer vaccine. And what about for the ones even younger than five? What can you tell us about that? Yes, those trials are actively ongoing uh, for the six month to two year olds uh, and currently enrolling. um, And so, uh, we're hoping to get information and um, be able to have uh, more information in the early part of the new year because that's the, the final age group that is currently not eligible for vaccination. As we wrap up, Dr. Shane, what also has just stood out for you in terms of not only just the messaging, and we've had this conversation before, but the messaging, the response. You know, I, don't, I won't get you involved in politics. I'll save that for folks like Governor Brian Kemp and Stacey Abrams. But uh, how do you assess how we are doing as a nation in getting folks, getting the message out, getting folks vaccinated, particularly the folks that you see the most, our little bitty ones, as we say? So I think that's a great question, Rose. And we've been doing the best that we can. But I think there's always opportunities to improve. And I think the best people that are advocates for vaccination are those who've been vaccinated. And uh, it's amazing. I've been so impressed with a number of children, adolescents, even younger children who have encouraged their classmates to get vaccinated, encouraged their friends, their siblings. So um, it's really a one-to-one campaign. And I do think I also want to say that it's important for people to get information and to make a decision and important to go to trusted sources uh, for information, uh, including the CDC and especially uh, the American Academy of Pediatrics and Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. We have really been working to try to be a trusted source of information. And so um, ask questions, get your information, but get it from trusted sources. Speaking of trusted sources, which obviously you would be one, can you share a story? We don't have to mention the names of maybe you had parents who just weren't convinced to the safety of the vaccine. And then after a conversation, you were able to to give them enough information and they decided to go ahead and get their, their, their ch- child or children vaccinated. What was that conversation like? So I uh, have many of those conversations every day. And, you know, I think the one thing that is really clear about uh, people who have concerns about vaccines is that uh, you really have to sit down with them and understand the reason why. It's not a one-size-fits-all And most of the time, it's somebody heard a story about somebody who had an adverse effect. And so really addressing that, providing people with information, understanding what their hesitancy is, um, and uh, really um, trying to explain to them that everything is a risk and a benefit and that the benefits of vaccination, especially for this virus, but for all vaccines, um, definitely outweigh the risk. And uh, there is a lot of unfortunate information about natural immunity offering better protection. And that is absolutely not clear, as is not true, and also uh, runs the risk of uh, everything that we've talked about. So it's just not worth it. So what do folks get wrong then about when we hear this? And I've heard this before, and I've had conversations with folks, and they, but natural immunity, that's all, as a parent told me, I, I come from good genes, is what the parents said. And, you know, we, we, we're good. That's what the parents said to me. Right. And I think what we don't know is there's a lot of things about this virus that we don't know. And while we have seen 
a number of otherwise very healthy, never been in the hospital, never had a cold, children who have acquired COVID have been severely ill and had months and months of hospitalization. So even though one has always been healthy and thinks that you have a good immune system, this virus is something that we have just not ever seen before. And so we can't predict, and that's the hard part about it. So, hmm. uh, and we know that vaccination provides good protection against severe disease. And certainly I think it's also important when you say that natural immunity is better, better than what, and how are you measuring that better uh, is also very important to understand. And we, we're just, there's a lot of information out there just learning and so but what we do know for sure is that vaccines protect against severe disease. Dr. Shane how are you doing during all this we've been talking for a long time it seems about all of this how are you holding up? (laughs) I'm uh I'm doing great thank you Rose and uh, I have worked with an amazing supportive team um and I'm so fortunate and um I just I'm so happy actually a few minutes before I got a text message from somebody who said that the, all three of their sons were going to get vaccinated uh, today. Um, and that was someone with whom I've had long conversations. Um, so um, those those kind of stories, that's what keeps me going. Dr. Andy Shane is a pediatric infectious disease expert at Emory University School of Medicine, also with Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. And a, and a note of disclaimer, we, although she's an expert, we ask that you make sure you consult with your own primary care physician or pediatrician. Dr. Shane can continues to be a regular contributor to Closer Look and WABE News. We really appreciate it as always. Happy holidays and thank you. Thank you, Rose. My pleasure. Closer look rolls on. As always, I'm Rose Scott. Third party candidates. Not uncommon. We know that. But I was reading an article actually that came out last year and it was speculating why these candidates are poised to, through their lens, never win a presidential or major election. That's what they said. The title was The United States History of Third Party Candidates is the Problem with Third Parties or with Our Binary Election System. Close quote. And I thought, That's a pretty good article. That's from the website fairvote.org. Well, my next guest will offer some insight. Joining me now is Tammy Greer, Assistant Professor of Political Science in the Department of Political Science at Clark Atlanta University, a place I I used to work many, many years ago. Dr. Greer, thanks for taking time. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Uh, let's begin here because I, in in researching and looking up, you know, third party candidates, there's all these questions. One, is it a wasted vote? Why are folks fooling around with third party candidates you it's not fair but some folks say look if it's done correctly if the nation changes this political structure party structure then we will have more options for folks what do you make of that just in general just in general it makes sense um because you want to have candidates that are more inclusive of uh, the ideas and the strategies and um, the beliefs of the the voters overall so to have um, a wide range of candidates actually makes sense because um you know different people need different things people in Georgia need something different from California. Mm -hmm. So it makes sense that you would have um, a variety of candidates to meet those particular needs. Should requirements then for third party candidates to get on a ballot, uh, should that be that vary then from state to state is what you're saying? Or should there be something national that the entire nation needs to adhere to? Right. So I think it's important for all of us to uh, to to be clear that elections are a, the function of the state. So um, when it comes to candidates on the ballot, we have to be clear that having a nationwide um, uh, law, policy, referendum, whatever, um, is actually you know not appropriate because it's all about the state when it comes to the Tenth Amendment of the Constitution. So to have the Constitution, um, the you know. for elections to be for the state is what's necessary. So, yes, it is a state-by-state function. You know, it was announced a few months ago that Andrew Yang was going to launch a a third party uh, because he's no longer, as he put it, identifying as a Democrat. And then I think there's always been this perception that third party candidates tend to hurt the Democrats. 
more than the Republicans. First, we'll start with that. Do you buy that that third party candidates tend to impact more of the Democrats than the Republicans? From a historical perspective, yes. From a historical perspective, third party candidates uh, tend to come out of um, the post civil rights version of the Democratic Party. And because of that, you see uh, some of the ideals of the Democratic Party become stronger in third party candidates. So there's an issue that third party candidates tend to be really, really firm on, whether it is economics or environmental or housing um, that comes traditionally out of the post-civil uh, rights era of the Democratic Party. I was speaking to uh, a candidate who was vying for a city council seat who identified as a progressive and said the problem for, as he saw it, with progressives, uh, they have to align themselves with Democrats for, one, funding, and then number two, also sometimes even be taken, you know, seriously because people say, oh, they're just sort of an offshoot of the Democratic Party. One, do you buy that the progressives still need to solely identify with Democrats just because of funding? For funding, yes. That's part of the strategy of um, the two-party system is that there is, um, for Republicans and for the Democratic Party, um, you have resources within those particular big big entities, um, money, um, access to voter rolls, uh, access to people who donated to individual candidates or to the national party overall. And, and those resources are key um, for candidates to run a campaign, a we, successful campaign. A successful mm -hmm. campaign. And then also mm -hmm. this candidate talked about being taken seriously because then folks say, well, yeah, they're a progressive candidate, but I know that they are in line with the Democratic Party. So I'm okay with that. Or you on the other side, they say, well, you know, I know they're in line with the Democrats, so I'm a Republican and that's fine too. So they, that yeah. there is that, that they're like the, they're, they're kin, they're related. They are, they are kin, they are related, yet they don't actually fit. And that's where um, the, the rub is, is that the third party candidates uh, bring substantive issues to the table and substantive solutions to the table, um, yet because they're very unique in a particular on a particular issue um it, it it the messaging is amplified when they become a third party rather than being in one of the big two well then it was a question then do third party candidates in a sense help or even hinder the, the largely two-party system right? we've kind of been talking about it but through your lens are they, as I put this, as someone who's writing to me now, they are not an asset, Rose. I'm like, okay, this is just what a listener just said to me. But how do third-party candidates help or hinder the, the largely two-party system here? So um, one could argue that having third-party candidates uh, actually helps in terms of amplifying particular issues um, that are the needs of particular communities. So if we talk about um, Andrew Yang and his um, notion of, you know, everyone receiving um, a check um, if you're an adult, whether you're a stay-at-home parent or working um, or just someone who works, um, and, and this additional income. Um, at first, everyone thought that was a, a very far left progressive going to break the budget of you know, the federal government. As time went on, you saw, interestingly, conservative Republicans starting to latch on to the idea, particularly during um, the height of the pandemic when people were losing jobs, how that seems to make sense. So third party candidates almost have a freedom to go ahead and to bring forth issues that the big two parties tend to uh, water down or moderate. And once that uh, that far issue is is uh, illuminated, then it's easier for the one of the two party or even both of them to start accepting that that policy uh, solution or recommendation and then start to massage it to make it digestible mm -hmm. for their particular constituents. Then for a candidate, would it be easier if they just said I'm independent and not really you know, align themselves with any party because there's they a difference. I think, I think people think if you're an independent, you're, you're obviously you're subscribing to being a part of a third party, which is, isn't necessarily true. 
But then you don't get the resources of the big two parties. Unless you're a billionaire. <laughs> you got still, some money. We've seen, we've seen billionaires, right? That's Who true. have run unsuccessful campaigns because, <laughs> you know, it's not just, um, you know, do you have the dollars? It is, do you have the infrastructure that will be helpful in order for you to be successful? Well, is there a playbook then that third parties can follow that has been successful that you can point to? I mean, what, what is that strategy then? The strategy, uh, number one, would be do you have, um, I know it sounds cliche, uh, but grassroots, right? Are you on the ground? Mm -hmm. Sometimes um, third party candidates want to start at the top and then, you know, don't really move forward. So is there support on the ground? Do people know them as an individual rather than as a label? And then it, it's all about the culture of the city, the state, the municipality. Um, what is that culture like? Is that culture seeped in the two-party system or is there room for, um, for additional um, individuals? Is one of the problems also been with some of these third parties in terms of clear identity clear philosophy, clear platforms that maybe it's not to voters. You know, we hear about certain parties and if you ask someone, what is this party about? And you ask someone who's in the party, two or three people, you get different answers. I've done that. I know. Right. So it's, it's not only is it clear. Also, are you moving beyond one issue? So, for example, if you are in the Green Party, the Green Party is very much about environmental issues, which we all applaud in some of those um, concerns and solutions they bring to the table and the two big party systems tend to latch on to them. What is it, though, beyond the environmental um, challenges is the Green Party about? Mm -hmm. What about other components? Um, the Green Party can argue that their, their strong stance on the environment actually is helpful in all the other sectors, yet do they connect the dots for the voters or are they leaving up to the voters to connect the dots between their large platform of the environment and how the environment impacts all the other challenges. What about with the Libertarian Party? There's some messaging there that has folks, at least they say to me, not sure what they're about. This is true because on the one hand, it's about um, individual freedom. Um, yet we see that individual freedom to make choices um, sometimes can contradict the overall public safety and, and health. And because of that, you run into some challenges because part of the social contract is that you want government there to help with safety and security. At the same time, if you're huge on, no, I can do all of those things and make all of those decisions myself, then it runs counter to the social contract. Then let me ask you this before we wrap up, because we've talked about the parties, is there a, I don't want to say a, a demographic that might, we might see in the future be successful at either rebranding, reimagining a current oh. third party? And we tend to talk about millennials, but let's face it, millennials, y'all getting old. So now we're focusing on, <laughs> that's my producer's laugh. Now we're focusing on Generation Z. That, that, that age group, could we see them possibly be more successful at trying to get a, a, a successful third party in the mix here in the future? One could argue that that is a thing, right? That they can um, continue to push. Um, at the same time, that's uh, still a heavy lift. Mm -hmm. um, so part of, um, you know, part of the push or the challenge for ourselves is, can we get, um, can we get more younger folk in these, the two party system mm -hmm. to move the two party system, right? Because if we don't understand the process and the system as exists, and then you try to go out and create another one, then you're going to run into some issues and then everyone's going to be disappointed and say it doesn't work. Mm 
-hmm. However, if you're able to say, okay, I understand what the structure is. I understand what the process is. I understand how to move that needle forward. Then maybe you can have um, a different outcome. At the same time, I see that the Republicans um, could, they could splinter. Uh, right now because of the former president Mm -hmm. and that's really creating a wedge for um, those that are traditional Republicans versus post-civil rights and those that are uh, more aligned with the former president. Good point. Tammy, good conversation. Tammy Greer, Assistant Professor of Political Science in the Department of Political Science at Clark Atlanta University. Going to have you back. Thank you so much for this conversation. Really important. Thank you so much for having me. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. So subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Again, congratulations. Let's get it done. Kennesaw State. I guess I root for the Georgia Bulldogs because... I have some colleagues here who went to UGA and my former producer, Grace Walker, is a bulldog and she'll send me a terse email or something. So, yes, let's go, Kennesaw State. Let's go, UGA. (laughs) Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.